Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Let's begin this morning with, with a question. How can you tell if someone is growing as a Christian? How can, te- how can you tell if you are growing as a Christian? And, and do you have a list? I, I know you have a list, I just don't know if you know that you have a list. Let me explain what I mean by that. Someone may ask you, is Henry a Christian? And you might say, you know, I don't think that Henry has darkened the doors of a church ever in his life. So no, I don't think Henry is a Christian. So that kind of gives away that that for you, church attendance might be one of the things that's on the list of someone's spiritual growth, uh, you know, the depth of things. Maybe it's Bible knowledge. You know, your friend Terry says, uh, you know, it says in the Bible that when God closes a door, he opens a window. And you kind of look at Terry and go, uh, I don't think that's really in the Bible. Um, and then you talk to somebody else, and they quote long passages of Scripture, and they do so impeccably, and you think to yourself, now that's a spiritual giant. You know, I want to be like them. I want to be able to know my Bible like they know the Bible. And for some people, being able to quote the Bible and to have great command of the Scriptures is considered a, a, you know, a sign of, of spiritual maturity, and I don't know that I would argue with that necessarily, although... I've known people who knew their Bibles really well and didn't seem to live a whole lot of it out. So you just, you know, take that for what it's worth. For some, it's vocabulary. You know, you're at a cookout at someone's house and you meet this guy and he is introduced as someone who maybe goes to church with the the host or, you know, somehow you put it together that maybe he calls himself a Christian, I don't know. And before you know it, in the conversation with this guy, he starts dropping F-bombs all over the place, right? And you're like, whoa, what's up with that? And Then you start thinking to yourself, man, that guy has great command of the Queen's English because that dude just used that word as a noun, an adjective, a verb, and a participle all in one sentence, you know? Like, I didn't know that was even possible. I am in the presence of a skilled linguist, right? Um, You might not think that, but inside you're thinking, I don't know that I'm in the presence of a Christian. I'm I'm just not sure. So maybe, maybe language is one of the things that for you is representative of spiritual growth. So what do you put at the top of the list? Perhaps it's someone's comfort in praying that impresses you, like publicly. You know, this poor guy is standing there, and you're in a group full of Christians, and somebody looks at him and says, hey, Dave, could you pray for us? And, you know, Dave's never been asked to pray publicly, and he, he's, he gets kind of flustered by the whole thing, and so he's going to do his best prayer for everybody, and he kind of bows his head, and dear God, um, thank you for this day, and now I lay me down to sleep and, you know, with liberty and justice for all, amen. You know, it's just like he, he just does the best he can. He doesn't really know what he's doing, but he's trying. And you would listen to him pray and you'd say, you know, I don't know that he's, that he's growing spiritually. He should be able to pray better than that. Maybe that's the thing for you that stands out as the thing that should be on the list, that, that this tells you that he's a spiritual person. It just seems like someone's ability to show up in a church building, their knowledge of the Bible, their vocabulary, or their comfort in public prayer are the things that impress us the most. And I think we have a list, and the real question is, what is Jesus' list? What does Jesus think makes someone a a spiritually strong or growing person? And is our list anything like Jesus' list? If Jesus had a list, what would be at the top of the list for Jesus? He was asked one time about that, and a guy came up to him and, and said, you know, what is the thing 
that needs to be at the top of the spiritual growth list. And Jesus answered that question clearly, concisely, definitively as to what was at the top. Now, it's not only important to hear the question that Jesus was asked but, and the answer that he gave, that's important, but it's also very important to know when he was asked this question and where he was when he was asked the question. So you have to understand that the when of this is in the last week of the life of Jesus. By the end of the week, Jesus will be hanging on a cross. His crucifixion is imminent. It is very near. And in the last week of the life of Jesus, he was continually going. The where is he was going to the temple. He went every day to teach, and he would, you know, uh, spend some time. I've got a picture for you of an artist's rendition of what the temple may have looked like. That's the temple proper through. You can kind of see it through the columns. And then that portico, the, the, the shelter there, the shade, that would be the courtyard of the temple. And um, in the last days of Jesus' life, he shows up at the temple day after day and more than likely taught under the, in the shade in the shelter because it was very hot and they would want to get in out of the sun. And the, the teachers would typically get in those shady places and that's where they would do their, their teaching. And while Jesus is teaching, the religious leaders of the day oftentimes would come up and interrupt him. And they would try to throw Jesus off. So a guy from the Herodians or a guy from the, the Pharisees or a guy from the Sadducees would come up, would interrupt Jesus in the middle of his teaching and try to get him to say something that would be incriminating to show maybe that he didn't have command of the, the law or maybe that he, he was, you know, was a heretic in some way. And they were looking for a way to trip him up and to get him in trouble and maybe to get him in trouble with the government. And so... There's this guy that's in the crowd, and he is a religious leader, but he's not like the others who are trying to trip Jesus up. This guy seems to have a really good heart, and, and he, he's watching Jesus respond to all these questions that people are asking him, and he realizes that in these responses that there's something different about Jesus, and, and suddenly the guy says, hey, I've got a question. I've got a question, and, and this guy's not trying to trip Jesus up. This guy's not trying to get him in trouble with anybody. Here's the question. He says, I want to know what's at the top of the list. You know, we, we've got all these things that we've got to know. I want to know what's at the top of the list. That brings us to Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him of all the commandments, which is the most important. In other words, Jesus, what do you put at the top of the spiritual growth list. Of all the commandments, which one is most important? Now this guy's an expert in the law. So when we talk about the law, understand your Bible's divided into an Old Testament and a New Testament. The Old Testament would have been the law that he, he read and it would have been basically his scriptures. And here's what you need to understand. In the Old Testament, there are 613 commands. Okay, that was their law, 613, that's a lot. 365 of them were negative commands, don't do this, don't do that, and then 248 of those would have been positive commands, you should do this, you should give your attention to this. And, and so as a teacher and an expert of the law, which this guy was, he would have had, had, had memorized these laws, prioritized them, cataloged them, and cross-referenced them. This guy had great command of the law, and he has a question, which one is most important? There are 613 laws, but as an expert in the law, he knew that, that, you know, the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath was sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, and you weren't supposed to travel. But this guy knew 
What was the legal limit for travel? He knew exactly how many steps could be taken on the Sabbath day without breaking the law. He also knew the debates on either side of that argument. One school of thought may have thought it was this many. Another school of thought may have thought it was this many. This guy would have known all that stuff. He knew that you weren't supposed to carry a load of, of firewood on the Sabbath day. But he also knew what constituted a burden and exactly how much stuff he could carry and not get in trouble. He would have known that in the temple courtyard, over where the, the, the temple was, in the courtyard, there would have been animal sacrifices going on, that you would bring your animal and there would be this sacrifice. He would know what animal needed to be sacrificed for what infraction. This guy knew all that stuff. And he's listening to Jesus and he says, hey, I have a question. Out of all these laws, 613 of them, which one is most important? And here's how Jesus replies. Verse 29, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. He answers this guy's question and devotion to God is at the top of the list for Jesus. But here's the thing, Jesus doesn't stop there. You know, he's asking for one and Jesus is like, no, there's, I'm not going to give you just one. I can't do that. He goes on, verse 31, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. So in other words, just love them like you love you. And then Jesus is going to basically take these two commands and he's going to lace them up and he's going to tie them together and he's going to make them one command. He says, there is no commandment, singular, greater than these. So while he laid two things out, Jesus pretty much sees them as one thing. So there's this vertical piece to this, you know, love the Lord your God. There's this, that part, which is kind of the up and down us and God. And then there's the horizontal piece to it, love your neighbor as yourself. And I think what Jesus would really say is, you love, your, you love the Lord your God by loving your neighbor as yourself. That's how you show that you love God. You love your neighbor. So both the vertical relationship and the horizontal relationship, they are tied together. They, they, they have something in common. The two are linked. John said it like this, whoever loves God and hates his neighbor is a liar. Because other people are made in the image of God, they are loved by God, and the way I show my affection toward God is by seeing other broken, fragile, messed up people the way God sees them and loving them anyway. Now, we're not real good at that. Thank goodness we're not God because God looks at us and all of our brokenness and all of our mess and he puts up with us and has this great compassion for us. We see other people that are messed up, broken, dysfunctional, and we, you know, we want to turn the other way and, and look down our nose and think things that we shouldn't think. I mean, thank goodness we're not God, but I express my love to God by loving those people. Messed up, dysfunctional, you know, got problems, obnoxious. My little brother growing up used to say ignoxious obnoxious people you know that's how you show that you love god jesus said there's no commandment that's and again it was a singular thing that that's greater than these two that i've laced together that you love god and you love people and the expert in the law this teacher he hears that and he says man you're you're so right he agrees with jesus verse 32 well said teacher the man replied you are right in saying that god is one and there is no other but him and i wonder if, if this man could smell the aroma of the burnt offerings that were happening over in the, in the courtyard, in the temple. I wonder if the smoke from the fire wasn't making its way over 
to where he was standing when he makes this next statement in verse 33. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus looked at this guy, and I, he loved him, and he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not quite there yet. Keep, keep moving. You know, keep seeking, keep pursuing, keep going, but you are so close to knowing what God really desires. So today, we're going to talk about what is at the top of the list, and, and I think this is going to be challenging and fun, and, and I, I hope that you see yourself a little bit in the story, um, but just please, whatever you do, don't think that this is going to be easy. Because this, this is not easy. What we're talking about today is not easy. Let me offer you a, up a new way to live today. And, and it begins by walking up to, to waking up each day to, to God and to Jesus and basically saying, God, I want to begin my day by offering myself up to you. And I would like for you to show me new and creative ways to love the people that you put in my path. And God, I want you to, I want you to teach me how to love other people. Now, I'm going to tell you, when you start praying a prayer like that, be very, very careful. When you start praying, God, help me, I want to learn to love. They come out of the woodwork, man. Every kind of messed up, you know, hard to love person that you can imagine just seems to make their way into life, and you get challenged, and God's like, okay, you, you really want to take a shot at this? Here we go. Love them. Love them like I would love them. Brett, love them. Love them the way you love yourself. How about we start there? Just love them the way you, you know, don't, you don't have to love them the way I love them. That, you may not be able to do that. I died for them. But you just love them the way you love you. And you're like, sometimes it's like, God, really? And God's like, yeah, really, that's what I want you to do. So I, I tell you, this is a new way to live, what we're going to talk about today. So here, here's what we discover. If somebody's attending church on Sunday and their Bible knowledge is increasing and their language is cleaning up and they're getting better at praying publicly and yet their love for flawed people around them is not increasing, they are missing something and that something is huge because it is possible to do all that other stuff and to miss the most important thing. This is really big. It's so big that we're going to spend two weeks talking about this, this topic of love. This is the opening message, and then next week we're going to follow it up with another message. Today is tough. If you think today's tough, wait till we get to next week and you hear what Jesus says about love. It is going to revolutionize your life. Today I want to talk about the four realities of the love Jesus was talking about. Reality number one is love trumps. Now I'm not talking about the president, okay? So don't protest. Don't, you know, hold up a resist sign or anything like that. We're not, this isn't a political message at all. Let me say that again, okay? This is not a political message at all, but love trumps. What we mean by that is love surpasses everything else. Anything else that could be on the list, love trumps it. Jesus is talking to this guy in the temple courts, and this is what he says. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. But he keeps going. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. You need to know that Jesus did not make this up. 
That these words did not originate with Jesus. These words go all the way back to the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 6, you read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's Deuteronomy 6. The other part, love your neighbor as yourself, you find that in Leviticus 19. Now you ask yourself, what was going on in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 that those kind of words would be spoken? And what was going on in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 is the desert. The children of Israel have just left Egypt. After generations of slavery, they have entered into the promised land, and their leader, Moses, is giving them the Ten Commandments. And he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Because they have just left a country in Egypt that is all about polygods. It's all about a, a, a polytheism system where there's all these gods for different things. You had Hecht, the, god, the frog god that represented the Nile. It was the god of the Nile. You had uh, Amun-Ra, who was the sun god. You had Apis, the bull, who was the god of fertility. You had all these different gods going on. And every place you turned, there was an Egyptian god that you would bow to and that you would worship. And what you witness in Moses in this statement is the birth of something that we know as monotheism. Monotheism as opposed to polytheism, where there's many gods. No, there's just one God. Moses said there's only one. That God is a unity, a oneness, a singularity. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not Isis, not Apis, not Amun-Ra, and it was love the Lord your God. Not the gods of Egypt. Say goodbye to those. You are to love the Lord your God with everything in your being. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is taking them right back to the very formation that they had as a people and as a nation. Love trumps. That's the, way, that's the thing that Jesus puts at the very top of the spiritual growth list. Are you loving the way God loves and are you loving other people as you love yourself? Here's the challenge. See, we will only make progress in this area if we can figure out what is currently number one for us on the list. You got to know what's number one for you. And here's what I'm going to tell you. Whatever is on your list, whatever things you would write on the chalkboard there and say, well, this is kind of my list of what, what, what you know, is important to me. Um, a consuming love for God and loving others like I love me is going to knock whatever you have number one on the list. It's going to knock it down. It may depose it altogether. Once you start loving other people the way God has loved you and the way you love you, you may look at some of the other things on your list and say, you know what, those shouldn't even be there. Those, those things aren't even healthy for me as a believer. You're only going to make progress if you know what is number one in your life. Do you know what is the most important thing to you, more important than anything else that isn't love? Do you know what it is? Let me help you figure it out. What do you dream about what do you daydream about? What are, what are you scheming about? What do you think about? Lay awake at night thinking, man, if I could, I just need to work more on that. What do you argue about? What gets you riled up when you don't get it? That thing that you want that's so important to you, and when you don't get it, it makes you mad. What is that? Answer those questions, and you will figure out what you have, number one, on the list. I've met a lot of, a lot of people that number one on their list was being right got to be right and they have destroyed or almost destroyed marriages and friendships and careers because they have reveled in backing people into corners and not relenting because they thought superior thinking and being right was the end-all be-all is that you 
Is that what you have at the top of your list? You say, man, I just, I'm all about being right. For some, it's results. They're, they're, they're the overperformer. They're the salesperson. And they think that being nasty, if it garners results, it's okay. Let me tell you something. Being nasty plus results equals wrong. All right? Get, being right and, and being nasty, that, that's wrong. And if somehow getting the results that someone wants seems to excuse that person from bad behavior and not being kind and loving, Jesus would say, if you're going to love me with your whole heart by loving other people, results is going to have to be bumped down the list and it may be deposed altogether. See, when we sacrifice results for relationships, something is terribly, terribly wrong in our system. Maybe for you it's money. Maybe that's the thing that you put on the list. This has come up several times over the last several weeks in our teaching. Money has just kind of surfaced. We, we talked about this. God says, you're going to have to choose between me and, and your stuff. You're going to have to choose between me and money. What's most important to you? You know, there's, there's a competition for your heart, and too often the wrong thing wins that competition. For some people, they have to have control. That's at the top of their list. Do you know somebody who thinks that they have to control everybody or everything? Aren't they some of the most obnoxious people you've ever been around? For some people, it might be efficiency. Efficiency. You're at a red light. You want to turn right at the red light. The guy in front of you has got his blinker on. He's going to turn right at the red light, but he's not moving. You can look down the road. Nothing's coming. No reason why he wouldn't go ahead and turn right. Blinker's blinking. It's like you, now you start muttering to yourself in the car. There's nobody else in the car with you to talk to. You're talking to you, Okay which might mean you got problems. So you're, you're, you know, now you're, there's audible, you're talking. Now you're starting to tap the wheel, and now you're honking the horn. And it's not a polite tap as if, as if you're saying, hey, I'm back here just to let you know, you can go, you know, politely. No, it's that, hey, dude, you're costing me seven seconds of my life. Go on already, right? Shaking your fist and all that kind of stuff. And then the guy turns around in the car ahead of you, and it's your pastor. <laughs> right? Maybe efficiency is really high on your list. And God says, look, if you love me and you love others like you love yourself, that is going to have to be dumped, uh, bumped down the list and maybe off the list altogether. We could go on about what goes at the top of our list, but it's important that you know because as you get closer to Jesus... If spiritual growth is going to take place, that number one thing that you've got placed up there is probably going to get bumped down, and it may be deposed altogether. So reality number one was love trumps. The rea second reality is this, love gives. Love gives. And just let me tell you, if efficiency or convenience is at the top of your list, then giving is inconvenient, and giving is very inefficient. Loving is inefficient. Loving is inconvenient. In Luke's gospel, Jesus was talking to somebody about loving God with your whole heart and loving your neighbors yourself. And the guy challenges Jesus with a question. He says, who is my neighbor? And in response to the question, Jesus tells the story. It's a story we're very familiar with. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. You know the story. The guy's on a trip. He gets attacked by robbers. The robbers steal his money, beat him up, leave him for dead, take his clothes, which was a really big deal because 
clothes were as valuable and as important as the money that the guy had, and, and this guy has nothing. He's laying there on the side of the road. Other guys come up and for whatever reason will not help this guy. Some of them are religious people, and they cross the street, go the other way, and they don't want to get involved, and they don't want to get their hands dirty. And all of a sudden, this guy comes up. The man who's been beat up is a Jew. This, this Samaritan comes up. And, you know, it's the last guy you expected to help a Jew. They didn't get along. There's a racism thing going on there. And, and this Samaritan takes oil out of his pouch, and he pours it in this man's wounds, and he, he begins to tend to his wounds. And apparently, in the story Jesus tells, this guy takes his clothes and makes rags and kind of binds him up. And... Um, he puts him on his donkey, and he's going to walk him to the next town, and this guy's now going to walk beside this donkey. I'll tell you a joke here in just a minute. He gives the innkeeper some money at the next town, and he says, listen, I've got to go keep going, but I'm going to be coming back through town. If there's any more expense other than what I've already given, take care of this guy. I'm going to check on him as I come back through town. If there's more expense, I'll cover that. Just take care of this guy. And Jesus said, that's what I'm talking about. That's what love looks like. Jesus asked the guy, who was the neighbor to him? And it happened that the guy had come from a different ethnic group. Like I said, there's this, this kind of a racism thing going on. The Samaritan had helped this Jew, and Jesus said, that's exactly what I'm talking about, where you don't see that kind of stuff, and you don't see color, and you don't see ethnicity, and you don't see different backgrounds, and you don't, you don't see all that stuff that gets in the way of us just loving each other. And see, everything about the story of the Good Samaritan is inefficient and uncomfortable. This is going to slow this guy down. It's going to cost him money. It costs him time. It costs him some of his olive oil. It costs him his garments. It costs him comfort. He's not even going get to get to ride his own donkey. I have a great joke for you. I heard a story one time about the, this, this missionary was in Mexico, and he every day he would, um, in his in his routine, he would see this man and his wife, and the man would be riding a donkey, and they would be headed to the market, and the wife would be walking on foot next to the man on his donkey, carrying some, some things that she was taking to sell at the market, some blankets and things. And so the, the missionary saw this every day. You know, he just saw this every day. And it bothered him that this man would not, he didn't, this woman was, he was riding a donkey, and his wife was walking. And so one day, he finally got up the nerve to walk up to this man and ask him about it. He said, listen, uh, he said, every day I see you walking, and, and every day I see, uh, I see your wife walking, and every day I see you riding the donkey. Why doesn't your wife ride the donkey? And he said, wife doesn't own a donkey. <laughs> you know, no category in his mind that his wife would get on his donkey and ride his donkey. So... So the Samaritan has this donkey, and he puts the other guy on the donkey, takes him to the city. Everything about this story is inefficient. Nothing, nothing good's going to come of this for the Samaritan. But everything about this story says, love gives. Love gives. See, that's not how we see love normally. Normally, what we use, the words we use, are love feels. Your favorite song, your favorite love song that you maybe are listening to on the radio these days is not talking about love gives as much as it's talking about love feels. It usually has something to do with some kind of romantic or sexual infatuation with somebody, and it's, it's all about, you know, feels. When Jesus is talking about who is your neighbor here, the two critical words are love gives. It's not the only place that these words are found in the Bible. One day, uh, one of the first verses we memorized 
as children was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus said that. In Ephesians, the apostle Paul is counseling husbands on how to take care of their wives. And this is what he says to the husbands about their wives. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, that is your job description right there, to serve and to die. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. Christ gave. Love gives. If love is costing me nothing, I have to question whether or not it's really love I'm talking about. If it doesn't cost me anything, you've got to really wonder if it's even love. Love gives. Kids in the room, do you love your mom? You go, yeah, of course I love my mom. Then do the dishes. Vacuum a floor for crying out loud. You know, make a bed. Pick your shoes and socks up off the floor. Get your underwear off the floor, right? I mean, moms, can I get an amen, right? Amen. It's a lame amen. Your houses must be impeccably clean. I don't know. Husbands, do you love your wives? You say, of course I love my wife. Then serve her. Put her first. Take care of her. Make her a priority. Here's the challenge for those of us who are married. Will you, you're going to go through times, okay? You're going to go through times in the long haul where you feel nothing for the other person. You will go through patches where it's just tough. Here's the challenge. Don't wait before you start to give love. Don't wait to feel before you start to, to give. Don't do that. Emotions tell you how to feel. They do not tell you what to do. One of the most powerful things you can do is to serve another person, even when you're not feeling a lot of positive energy toward them. Act first, feel later. Love gives. It's just that simple. Love gives. Right about now, somebody in here is thinking to themselves, you know, they're saying, Brett, you don't get it. I'm empty. Dude, I'm numb. I, I am, I am, there's nothing left. I just got, I'm empty. The third reality is this. Love receives you should not be totally empty. Did you know that Jesus was deeply loved and he knew it? Not just by the disciples. Jesus was deeply loved by God. On one, a couple occasions, God the Father announces just how much he loved Jesus. The baptism of Jesus inaugurated his public ministry and it was, at, at, it was there that the Bible records this story where uh, you know, John the Baptist is there, and, and they're baptizing Jesus, and the, the Spirit of God came down out of heaven and rested on Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 3, we read these words. A voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Jesus hadn't healed anybody yet. He hadn't preached his first sermon. He didn't have his first disciple. As far as we know, Jesus hadn't done anything in ministry. And what God had to say about him when John the Baptist was baptizing him is, this is my son, and in him I'm well pleased. This isn't the only time that God said this. There's an event called the Transfiguration. He's on top of this hill. He's with his inner circle of Peter, James, and John. The Bible says that his clothes became radiant, like they started shining. It was just this amazing thing. And this voice comes out of heaven, and it says, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus was loved. He received love from his heavenly Father. 
Well, that's great, Brett, but after all, that's Jesus. I mean, I'm not Jesus. God's not going to love me like he loved Jesus because I'm not Jesus. I'm a mess, Brett. That's the way God loved Jesus because Jesus didn't make any mistakes, but I make mistakes all the time. I have a verse for you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Listen to this. And I'm going to do something with this verse in a minute. I'm going to teach you something about this verse that's really cool in just a minute. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Paul is writing to new believers in Ephesus, and right out of the chute, he's telling these new believers, you belong. You belong. God marked you for adoption to be his sons and daughters. For the believer, your place as a son or daughter of God is your most fundamental identity in life. You know that, right? When you responded to the forgiveness of God that Jesus secured for you on the cross, and it's offered to everybody from the cross, when you responded to that, you are defined by your, not by your successes, not by your failures, you are defined by the fact that you are now a son or daughter adopted sonship into God. This is an important point, and I need to tell you something to really drive this home. You have to understand that the culture to which this particular verse was written was a throwaway culture. Kids were disposable in Roman culture. In Roman culture, it was common for a newborn baby to be brought to the father and laid at his feet. And if the Roman father was going to accept this child, he would bend down and he would pick the child up and he would bring it to his chest. If he did not accept the child, he would turn around and walk away. And at that point, they would take the child away from him and he was disposed of. They didn't kill the child. They did something called exposure. They would leave the child out in the elements and they would let the gods decide what happened to the child. So they'd put the child on a hillside or in a field or in the marketplace or on the city dump and hypothermia or dehydration or an animal would come along and a lot of kids, that's, that's how they met their end. But there were people who were looking to make a buck who would come along and look over the babies and they were looking for the ones that they might be able to take home and raise up to one day sell as slaves or prostitutes on the open market. There were slaves in the church at Ephesus who had been dumped as kids, and they had been picked up and raised and sold. And they were sitting in church one day, and the pastor at Ephesus walked in, and he had a fresh letter from the Apostle Paul. And he said, guys, I got something I want to read to you from the great Apostle Paul. And Paul wrote to them, and I want to, I've changed a couple of words in this so that you can see this. I want you to think about this verse in the, in the context of a, a slave who was rejected by his father, raised as a slave, sold as a slave, into slavery, and has never known what it was to be a son. Listen to this verse. For he chose you in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, he predestined you for adoption to sonship. He's telling them your most defining moment is not the moment that you got tossed out. 
Your most defining moment was the moment that God accepted you as a son or a daughter in Jesus. Our sonship defines us and nothing else. Love gives, love receives, but get this, love gives because love receives. The fourth reality is this, love spills. You don't come to the people around you empty. You come to the people around you full. What we are to do, I think, is to be constantly reminded of our status as sons and daughters and drinking that in, receiving a filling that allows us to pour into the lives of other people. Love spills. Love spills over into other people. I want to read one passage from Ephesians 5, then we'll close. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Just follow God's example. Not as street kids, but as dearly loved children. Before I close, I want to I put an image in your mind. Have you, ever seen, um, have you ever seen somebody take like chalices or wine glasses or something and make a, a foundation with them and then they stack another set of glasses on top of that? And they basically build a pyramid out of those glasses, and then someone takes and pours liquid into it, and one glass fills up, and it overflows, and it pours down into the other glasses, and those overflow, and it pours down into the other glasses. I want you to have that image in your mind right now. That's what we should look like. As we get filled up to overflowing, and whatever God fills us up with just overflows, and we pour that out, it spills over into the other people. And just imagine what would happen if us as a church, if we just started overflowing and spilling out our love to other people, and they overflowed and they spilled out to other people. Just imagine what would happen just if the Christians got that and figured that out. What would happen in the world if we just started doing that? Sometimes we are pathetic at giving love. But you know what? Sometimes we're really pathetic at receiving it. You can only give what you've received, and some of us need to receive the love of God. I talk a lot in here about giving your life to Jesus, and if you've been coming to church here for a while and you've heard me do that, and you think, okay, here he goes with the preacher ninja. Here he goes where he tries to talk me into coming to Jesus. Yeah, I'll just be honest with you. I have an agenda this morning. I have an agenda. I'm not going to hide it. I, I will not rest until we do everything we can to bring as many people to Jesus as we can. I'm not going to apologize for that. I love you. And if you've not given your life to Christ, here's what I know about you. You're not fully living your life in the abundance that could be yours. And you've got some things going on that you need to be set free from. And the only way that's going to happen is you get fully forgiven, that you get the pardon that you so desperately need. And deep down, you know you want it. See, when I talk about coming to Jesus, you start raising all the, you start raising all the, the objections. Oh, I'm going to have to go to church all the time, and I'm going to have to change this and do that, and it's going to cost me something. And you know what? Discipleship is probably going to cost you something. I'm not going to lie to you. It'll probably cost you something. Your life is probably going to change if you come to Jesus. But here's what's going to happen. Here's the ultimate change. You will be forgiven and set free. And when you, you know that nagging thing when you lay down at night and you go to bed and you think, man, I'm not a very good person. I wish I could be better. You know what people who belong to Jesus, you know what their nights are like when they lay in bed? Here's what mine sounds like. God, I totally let you down today. 
I completely screwed that up. God, there are so many places in my life that I can see and point to, and it's just not good. I just I want to be so much better. But God, I'm forgiven. <laughs> Man, that feels good. I'm forgiven. Here's what you need to know. If you've never come to Christ, here's what you need to know. God wants to forgive you not just for what you have done. God, God has forgiven you. God wants to forgive you for everything you ever will do. Those of us who are Christians, we are forgiven. Think about that. Let that wash over you. I am forgiven. Man, that's beautiful. That's what's offered to you. That's what you get when you come to Jesus. You are forgiven. You're loved. I tell you all the time, God's crazy about you. God's crazy about you whether you ever accept him or not. God loves you. Maybe it's time you loved him back. Maybe it's time you came to him and said, God, I'm, I'm done running. Jesus, I belong to you. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what, it's gonna, what you're going to do with me, but I don't even know why you'd want me. But here I am. I'm telling you, God longs for you. He longs for the day that you come to him and give your life to him. You have that opportunity in just a minute. Band's going to come out. They're going to play. And you have the chance to give your life to Jesus this morning. Let's pray and the band will come out. Father, we give you thanks. We love you. You're awesome. You're great and greatly to be praised. And Father, for the person that's here this morning, and they, they, maybe they've been fighting this for a long time. They, they know they need to give their life to you, but they're afraid what that's going to look like, and they're afraid they're going to be a hypocrite, and they're afraid what their friends are going to say. Father, I pray you would take every one of those things away from them, and you would just put this one thought in their mind, forgiveness. New life clean slate, glory forever, abundant life in Christ, freedom. That's what you offer us, God. And those of us who've been forgiven and given our life to you, we know that freedom and we give you thanks for it. So Father, this morning, would you be honored by our worship? Would you know our hearts and know that we love you and want you to be praised? And Lord, we are so thankful for what you do for us. We just simply offer a thank you in closing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.